Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. The lectionary hands us several passages each week and says, here you go, deal with this. However, from time to time, the particular moment in the life of a community, and hopefully the movement of the Holy Spirit, invites us to step out of what our normal practice would be. That means that over the coming weeks, you're going to have to uh, wrestle, perhaps, with hearing some texts that we're not going to touch on at all. That's going to be very difficult for me, to be honest with you. But in some ways, it's, it's not that different from normal because we can never get to everything. All of our reading together is a starting point. It's an invitation to ponder these things in our heart the rest of the week. It's an invitation to keep reading. It's the knowledge that we're going to be spending a lifetime returning to this story again and again and again. For the coming weeks and then stretching into Lent, we're going to walk through what most of us know as the Ten Commandments. And perhaps you hear that and you think, well, now that is a downer. Maybe you think, oh, dear God, are you kidding me? I have heard all these rules before. I'm going to at least ask you to stick with me. One little side note that I didn't know until this week, which I think is just interesting. Uh, the oldest manuscript we have of the Decalogue, which is um, in some ways a better name for the Ten Commandments, it's from roughly 30 BC, and it was found in the caves in, of Qumran. You might have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. These are the scrolls that were found in the late 40s and early 50s by uh, Bedouin shepherds. And they were literally pieces of parchment that had been stuck millennia before in uh, clay pots and stuck back in a cave and some Bedouin shepherds found these and the very oldest one that we have that has part of this text that we know as the Ten Commandments is called the All Souls Deuteronomy. So I read that and I thought, you know, we should make our claim to it, right? <clears throat> I want to tell you um, a few reasons why I think this would be a really good moment for us to hear this text. These ten words offer a reorienting expression of who our God is. What it is our God loves. What kind of world our God envisions. In Hebrew, it's literally the ten words or the ten sayings or the ten matters. In English, the translation for these 10 words is Decalogue. In the 1500s, the Geneva Bible termed it the Ten Commandments, which was then followed about 60 years later by the KJV, and it ruled the day, and everything since then we have known and heard as the Ten Commandments. And that's absolutely correct. There is no shying away from the fact that there are 10 bold commandments here. But it is not in any way merely a list of rules to keep. These ten words reflect to us something that is deeply true about our God. 
Don't we want to know more about the deep heart of our God? Aren't we curious to know why these teachings are so crucial to the one who loves us? Don't we want a richer, thicker picture of what it means to live as God's renewed people in the world? So I think it's important for us to hear these words because it returns us again to what is most essential, our God. A second reason is that these ten words offer a concrete picture of what being God's people in the world looks like. There's two versions of the Ten Commandments. One in Exodus chapter 20, which is the one that we're primarily going to be spending our time in. That's where it was first offered. And there's another one in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Each of these were given to Israel at very pivotal moments in their life together as a community in the world. Exodus was given just after Israel had escaped from Pharaoh in Egypt and they were having to rediscover their entire identity because it had almost been wiped out. And then years later, Moses again in Deuteronomy gives them the law. And this was just before the people were about to enter into the land that God would give them as their home. In both of these moments, the people needed to know anew who they were and how it was that they were to be God's shining light for the world. Probably, for most of us, one way we have misheard the Ten Commandments is that we have primarily heard them as first and foremost words about individual behavior. It is absolutely true that our personal obedience is required from if we are going to bear the fruit that these commandments want to bring into the world. But heard in that way first and by itself, they're going to be really misunderstood. These ten words are primarily about the creation of a new kind of community, a new people. These words really should be heard just like the Creator's Genesis words those words that crafted the stars of the sky and the expanse of the ocean and the flooding of the fertile earth with every kind of beast and flower. In Genesis, we have seven words or seven days. And in the Decalogue, we have 10 words or 10 days, if you will. These 10 words establish the conditions necessary for a free, loving, and just community for God's people to develop and flourish. That's Eugene Peterson's words. He says those three adjectives, free, loving, and just, those are basic to community. So these ten words give us tangible expression of what does it mean for God's people to actually be a renewed, restored, redemptive people in the world, living as lights to the world, what is the picture of this that's not merely idyllic or conceptual? Don't we long for a true picture of what it means to be redeemed in the world? Often in liturgies and different traditions, the Ten Commandments are read at the beginning of a new season. 
these 10 words are practices. They're things we're to do and things we're to not do. It seemed to me that as our church, uh, with great joy, looks back over a decade, it's a really wonderful moment to pause and ask, in this pivotal moment of our community's life, what exactly is it, what does it look like to be God's renewed and redeemed people in the world? There's a third reason. These ten words, holy, searing, penetrating, they cut through the crushing weight of our hubris, and they return us to an odd silence and dependence before God. When these ten words were read to Israel, Israel was smitten in their heart with the awesomeness of God. You might remember the story that Moses went up to the top of the mount and there was thunder and dark clouds and God's voice spoke and the people quaked and trembled. Most of them dropped to their knees, which is the sane response when God speaks. People took off their shoes. They bent low to the ground. People began to change their ways, not for long, but for a moment, they changed their ways. They began to reorient their life. Eventually, the people rejoiced with all of the new possibilities that emerged once they were reoriented to what was true. It's exactly what we read in Isaiah chapter 6. It's what we sang today. There's something that happens when we truly hear and see God. And I sometimes am concerned that in a culture like ours, we have so reacted to some very damaging and negative ideas of what it means to be afraid of God. God is not someone who causes terror. But I get a little uncomfortable that we are so flippant with how we think about God. Whenever we gather here to worship, um, it's, it's a tricky thing because we are a family. We don't have a lot of rules we need to keep. But we are encountering the creator God of the universe before whom all heaven and earth bows. What we're doing here is different than a backyard barbecue. We are ordering our life to God. It's part of why in our call to worship, we ask everyone to stand. It is a bodily way of saying something holy is happening. It's why at the gospel reading, when we are hearing the good news of Christ, we ask you to stand. In Jesus, we discover the astounding, freeing reality that God is our friend. Have some of you, I hope, been released from some really weighty baggage by truly hearing the deep word that God is your friend. That Jesus is your brother. That God is the one who is near. At some point, though, alongside this, not in competition, but also true, 
is that God's friendship is not weak or spineless. Thanks be to God. I know that some of us have had parents who were ogres. They were just mean. You don't really know what it's like to feel the tender love of a father or a mother. And that is a deep heartache that God wants to heal. Some of us have also had wimpish parents who never really were strong in our life. It's another kind of wound on the other end. God does not rubber stamp whatever we believe. God doesn't look at however we care to live and just go, eh, okay. Please hear what I'm about to say because it is the fundamental truth. God absolutely, unequivocally, with no reservations, loves you. Before you do anything for God, while you are running away from God, God absolutely loves you. God wants you. God desires you. God looks out for your best interests. And with that, the holiness of God invites us into a kind of freedom that lets us know that whenever we are running from God, it is disaster. God's holiness invites us to true freedom by insisting that we bend our life toward God rather than committing that crucial error by trying to make God bend toward us. That will never work because it's a lie. The most destructive thing God could do is lie to us. But because of the holiness of God, God will not lie. So this is why the very first of the ten words that we hear is the word we most need to hear. God. Sometimes um, pastors get asked goofy questions, um, usually not by anybody in the church, I mean, sometimes maybe, but um, get asked questions like, what is your philosophy of ministry? If any of you ever asked me that question, which I've never heard, I don't, I'm not thinking about you. Um, I don't like the question. Philosophy, that's like a philosophy of ministry. That's something in the abstract. That's things I would write about like my first year after seminary before I had any idea what I was actually talking about. <laughs> but if you want to ask me, what does it mean to be a pastor? I think there's two fundamental things for me it means, and the very first thing it means is it means God. It means it is my job to stand here, to stand alongside you, to be with you in prayer, and to point to God. Michael Ramsey, the Archbishop of Canterbury in the mid-1900s, said being a priest meant going to God with the people on your heart. That's essentially my philosophy of ministry. There's a lot of things that I don't know. There's all kinds of mistakes that I make. There's a lot of things that I'm not very good at. 
But I do know that one thing is my job to do, which is to just point to God and to call you as God's people to worship that God. And I do that because in the depths of my soul, I believe that that is what is true about the world and that everything else will destroy us. It's why on days like August 13th, I make absolutely no apology for standing before you and calling you to worship. The words that God first spoke in Exodus 20, before he even really spoke the first commandment, if you will, Scripture says, and God spoke all these words. The words we're going to hear are the words that God speaks. Which means a couple things. It means we can trust that they are good. And we can trust that however we hear them that feels like death is a lie. And it also means that if you have a beef with any of these words, talk to God, not to me. I mean, I'll talk to you, but I'm just reading what God has said. And he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. The very thing God begins before asking us a single thing is to tell us, I have loved you. I have seen you in your misery. I have come to you. I have rescued you. I love you. You are mine. That's the starting point. God is not distant and far away. God is not someone who drops rules down for humans to sort of keep because God fancies such a thing. God is the God who rescues and says, if you want to be rescued, this is what being rescued in the world, living as a rescued person looks like. The problem with Israel is they had been rescued out of Egypt, but what God knew is that if he didn't guide them into what was true, they would just return to another kind of Pharaoh. They would just go into another kind of slavery. We as humans return over and over and over again to one form of bondage after another. And the liberating message of the God who rescues is, I am the Lord your God and I rescue you. And when God begins to speak, do you know what we do as humans? If we have any sanity at all, we close our mouths and we listen. Here's the thing. We talk too much. It's my job to talk. I talk too much. We listen too little. It's why we try to have this one meager, paltry moment in our call to worship where we say, let's be silent. And half of us go, okay, whatever. We have got to have some moment where we say, we will close our mouths. 
We will have a moment where we say what we need to hear more than a pastor's words, more than our music, more than anything that is shared. What we most need to hear is for Almighty God to speak to us. And in that silence, we are quieting ourselves and saying, I'm just acknowledging that my words are, are insufficient. So we see in these commandments, contrary to popular opinion, contrary in some ways to what I was even taught in seminary, we see grace. Because it begins with God's mercy saying, let me say before anything else, I have rescued you. And these commandments require us to hear from God because what we discover in the rest of the New Testament and through our own experience is that we actually can't keep these things very well on our own. It actually requires God and the Holy Spirit for these things to even become alive in our life. So much so that what a prophet later tells us is, what's going to happen here because this is a mess, is I am going to write the law on your heart. I'm going to do that. And I'm not going to write on tables of stone. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. And the Holy Spirit is going to come and do a miraculous work in your heart within the community of God. And I'm going to make you a new people. I sure hope you'll say yes to that. And so that first commandment tells us the one thing as humans we most need to hear. This is the word you most need to hear. It's not the word you just most need to hear today. It's not the word you just most need to hear, but depending on the situation in your life, if you draw breath, this is the word you must need to hear. That you shall have no other gods before me. The problem is there are other gods, or at least would-be gods. The question is, what god will we have? You may have noticed in the in the litany we pray today from the Psalms, it referred to these other gods. In much of the Old Testament, there is an assumption that there are gods all over the place. That gets a little complicated as you move into the New Testament. We won't get into all of that. But at least on a baseline level, the question in the Old Testament is, what god are you going to serve? We will worship something. We absolutely will worship someone. You may not know you're doing it, but we're doing it. The question for us is, will we worship something true? Something that orients us toward truth and goodness and justice and freedom and love? Or will we worship something that moves us toward lies, toward self, toward grasping for power, toward self-righteousness, toward whatever seems right in our own eyes, toward illusions that ultimately destroy us? The question for Israel was not, the question for Israel was, are they going to be a slave again or not? In our gospel reading, the disciples lay down their fishnets. It's a quaint story. We've heard it if we're growing up in church. Few of us 
fish that much. No, no one that I know of fishes for a living here. So it doesn't mean much to us. These men were laying down their livelihoods, their identities, their ways of providing for themselves, their visions of their future, what they had always assumed their life would be like, what they thought they required in order for their life to have meaning, what others thought of them, what they thought of themselves, how they would take care of themselves, who they were. When they laid down their nets, they laid down their gods. And at least in this one daring moment, they said, I will have no other God but the one that calls me to follow. The first five commandments deal with how we live with God, and the next five deal with how we live with one another. That's crucial. God first, others next. God first, our actions next. God speaks first. We speak second. What God says first, what we think next. What you believe about God. Maybe it would be better to say how we situate our life under God will order or disorder everything else. Every relationship, every hope, every ideal. And we won't hear another one of these words properly. It will hit us merely as moralisms or how-tos or a heavy yoke if we don't first say, I am bending my heart and my life to God, believing that God is the one who leads me to life. That God is actually required for me to come to my full identity of who I actually am. If you want to be who you truly are, follow God. If you want to live life that is truly abundant, hand your life over to God. It is an absolute lie of our age that when we hand our life to God, we lose our true self. And because we believe that lie, we hold on to everything. And we're so afraid of losing things. And we're so afraid of being asked to do something that's going to hurt. But if God is the God who rescues you out of Egypt, if God is the God who releases you from every kind of slavery, then God's word to you is life. And every word that God speaks to us is life. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.